Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, short story, essay, or memoir are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of the author's first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we are really lucky to get to hear from Virginia Pye, who's a friend and wonderful fellow novelist in, in our local area. She's going to give us a sneak peek of her latest novel, The Literary Undoing of Victoria Swan. And the book will re be released in October, um, October 3rd, exactly, and should be launching it at Harvard Bookstore. So if you're actually in town, you can get to see her live. Good morning, Ginny. Thank you so much for being on our show. Good morning, Michelle. Very happy to be here. I've really loved the series so far. Yes, it's just wonderful. And so I will be calling her Ginny just because I love that nickname. It's my favorite. But her again, her writer's <laughs> name is Virginia Pye. She is an award-winning author of three novels and a short story collection, Shelf Life of Happiness, which won the 2019 Independent Publisher Gold Medal for Short Fiction. Her debut novel, River of Dust, was an indie next pick and a 2013 finalist for the Virginia Literary Award which is good that you can win the Virginia Literary Award. Um, her second novel, Dreams of the Red Phoenix, was named a best book of 2015 by the Richmond Times-Dispatch. She is a fiction editor for Pangyrus, a literary journal based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a board member of the Women's National Book Association Boston chapter. Virginia grew up in Cambridge, Mass, and she moved back after 35 years of living up and down the East Coast. So we are glad to have her back. All right, Ginny, give us an yes. overview of your books so that we have some context for your first pages. Okay, will do. Um... So, as you just mentioned, I moved back to this area after many years away and was totally struck by how literary it is, how everybody here reads all the time. I was just alarmed. Literally, you can see people walking down the sidewalks, holding books up in front of their face. I don't know how they don't fall, but anyway, um, people stopping at stoplights are reading books in the line at the grocery store. They're reading books. So, I love that. And I felt so at home, but I also started to notice all the historical markers for um, uh, famous literary men of the past who pretty much make up a big part of the American canon. Mm -hmm. And I started to imagine, well, not only did I start to feel like the pressure of being, you know, where Harvard University is and where all these great writers have been, but I started to wonder what it would have been like to be a woman writer back in the era when this shadow of these great male literary gentlemen of letters, you know, would have been um, right here in their own hometown, in her own hometown. So I started to try to imagine a woman writer of an earlier time. And I started to do some research and I came upon a figure back in the 1860s who sued her publisher for underpaying her as a woman. She was an essayist. She was from Concord. I read literally two sentences about her and my character of Victoria Swan started to take shape. I totally changed the circumstances in the sense that my novel is set in Gilded Age Boston, so 1890s, a little later, and she is a highly successful author of romance and adventure novels. So they're dime novels, these little pamphlets that all the young women read and also larger, thicker novels. Um, 
And she's sort of supporting her publisher with her high sales of her novels, her romance novels. But she has this desire to write more personally from the heart, her own true story, a real woman's story, not a fake made up idealistic one. And that was my character. And how is this woman, Victoria Swan, going to find her voice both on and off the page? As she starts to make this change, everything falls apart, as often happens in novels. And she loses her publisher. <laughs> she loses her husband. She loses her home. And yet she becomes closer to the, her women readers who have adored her for so long. So we get to follow her and her quest to find her own voice. So it's a, it's a woman writer's story. It's a feminist story. And it's also a lot of fun. Yes. How's yeah. that? Rather long preamble. And I'll make the reading and, shorter. And we'll, we'll hear her. I mean, she's, she's a little bit spunky. And, and there's parts of her that's even a little bit snobby, but in, a, in, a, in the best way. You know, she's, she's definitely has that spine. Um, and yeah. it just makes you lean in and want to listen to what's going to happen to her. Okay. Good, it's, good. It's she starts out as successful. So she's got, she's, she's a little cocky. She's, so we'll, yeah, we'll hear that. Cocky. Okay. And, and that's good to have people listen for tone because that's what I want to talk about um, in terms right. of first pages. Okay, The Literary Undoing of Victoria Swan. Chapter one. On an overcast afternoon in April, Victoria Swan stepped from a carriage onto a brick sidewalk in Beacon Hill. Under her boots, coarse rivulets of slush and mud evidenced that Boston had survived yet another winter. She gripped the iron handrail and climbed the steps to her publisher's door. Lifting her face into tepid sunlight, she felt the early spring air brush her cheeks. She was a mountaineer, high at the peak and flush with accomplishment. In her carpet bag lay the start of an altogether new sort of novel, unlike any of her previous ones. She lifted the knocker and struck it against the brass plate. Her writing had gotten her into this mess and it would have to get her back out. The door swung open and her editor's gangly clerk bowed and moved out of the way. Welcome, Mrs. Swan, welcome. Victoria prepared for the fanfare that greeted her at Thames, Royal and Quincy. Her editor would serve her favorite pastries as she, and as she sipped tea, the young clerks would circle around as if she were that rare snow leopard Mr. Barnum paraded about the country. But who were these young men uh, who tossed her furtive glances, who tossed furtive glances her way? Aspiring editors, they were never the best looking specimens, their posture weakened from hours bent over manuscripts. But at least a husband of this sort wouldn't go missing for days. These fellows were decent. They were, after all, book lovers. Victoria craned to search for them now, but sensed something amiss. She stood alone in the Spanish tiled vestibule with a brass hat stand and chinoiserie umbrella holder. Not a soul in sight, she deposited her parasol with a disappointing thunk. Down the hall, she spotted the bustle of a ruby-colored dress and an equally startling mane of flowing red hair. A handsome gentleman with his own abundant silver mane followed. Victoria watched them disappear into an office while her bald-headed editor, Frederick Gaustad, waddled after them, cigar smoke in his wake. A moment later, several stray assistants passed close by and Victoria caught the eye of the gangly one who had let her in. She asked him what was going on. It's terribly exciting, he said, coming to take her things. Miss Pennypacker is paying us a visit. The dance hall singer? He bobbed on the balls of his feet. Yes, she's writing an advice book for young ladies and we're to publish it. 
He invited Victoria to take a seat in the front parlor and said that Mr. Gowstead would be with her shortly. She strode onto the Persian carpet, but, couldn't, but didn't know which way to turn. She couldn't possibly wait contentedly on the deep leather sofa. Was it true that Thames, Royal, and Quincy planned to put out an advice book by someone other than Mrs. Swan? And why was she being corralled into the waiting room like a traveling salesman or, God forbid, an aspiring author? In the gold-framed mirror above the mantelpiece, Victoria caught a glimpse of herself. It took only a fraction of a second to spot the frown lines at the corners of her mouth and the pinched redness around her eyes from too much reading and writing. She tried to recall the girl she had been a dozen years before when, unable to resist her own pretty reflection, she had stood on tiptoes to see herself in the glass. Full of gumption and more excited than nervous, she had been sure that good things were about to come her way. And they did. A robust Frederick Gowstead had made a quick assessment of her first romance and adventure novel and promptly decided to publish it. Victoria's life had changed that day and was never the same. A much-changed Gowstead appeared in the doorway now. More rotund than ever, he limped to greet her and emitted a slight groan as he bent to kiss her hand. How astoundingly delicate oversized men could be. Lovely to see you, my dear. Good to see you too, Frederick. I only wish it were more often. He waggled a finger at her. Your readers are always eager to hear from you. My readers hear from me as often as humanly possible. Victoria forced a smile. Any more frequently, and my hand would drop to the page, pen fallen from a lifeless grip. You wouldn't want that now, would you? Ever so dramatic, but don't you see but I don't see how you manage without the use of a typewriter. You know how it slows you down. I'm anything but slow. It's the constant deadlines you set. My poor assistant, Dottie, pounds away to do her part. I can't imagine the chaos of two machines clacking at once. But come now, Frederick. Victoria held out her elbow for him to take. Don't we have other things to discuss? I'm here for my final edits. Yes, of course. And whatever your methods, we're grateful for the outcome. With a feeble hand, he steered her toward his office door. We're counting on you, my special girl. He squeezed tighter, and Victoria was glad that his vigor had returned, though then he began to cough and pulled a handkerchief from his pocket. Your illness is back. You should see a doctor. Doctors, Gauss says, said, pulling away the cloth. The only one I've ever liked was the fellow who saved the day in one of our early Mrs. Swans. Remember how splendid we did on that one? Victoria did remember. The doctor who had saved the day had used indigenous medicines concocted by female spirit healers of the jungle. She had learned all about those remarkable women and their magical substances at Harvard's Peabody Natural History Museum. Sadly, the skills of those Amazonian women had been lost not only on her editor, but her readers as well. According to Gaustad, the interior plate depicting the heroic doctor in an open neck shirt had been the cause of the stampede at the booksellers. I think I'll stop there. Um, yeah. All right. I mean, I just... So there's a few things I'm noticing here, and yes. I think you get the time period so well across with um, not only the narrative style, but also the dialogue, but it's not overly stiff um, or, or overly um, elevated, which is a mistake that I sometimes see authors do, is that they, they when they're writing a um, historical novel, it's like suddenly the dialogue becomes as stiff and dead as a yes, <laughs> as yes, people in the novel actually are. Um, so it's still lively. It still has emotion to it. It's still, and and what I also really like is that as she's going into the office there in that third paragraph, she has all these expectations. Um, 
I think it was the third paragraph about, yes, yeah. that she'd be served her favorite pastries and she'd be sipping tea yeah. and they'd have all these young clerks circling around her. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something too that I think authors forget to do is when they know they're writing a scene in which their character is going to be upset by something, oftentimes they just write the upset. They don't write the background about what their expectation was to set up that upset so that we mm -hmm. can actually feel it without it even being spelled out on the page. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we gotcha. also know there's trouble. We know there's trouble there. Right. And right. her editor is obviously very ill. So we know, <laughs> we know that this is several not problems. Well, this is <laughs> yes, so yes, yes. Problems indeed. upcoming. And so this this person is also, you know, also kind of you know, holds herself in a certain esteem and we just kind of expect a downfall. But we also, I think, are liking her and championing her at the same time. So it's a, it's a wonderful yeah. setup that you get up in the very first pages. Okay. Um, All of those points, I can just, I, I mean, we could, we could go on for hours about tone. And I think that's yeah. what would be good to focus on. And you, you caught it right away that some historical fiction, and I've been thinking about this a lot leading up to this conversation, especially, but um, some historical fiction tries very hard to just get entirely into the eyes of the character. You see the whole world through that character's eyes. And an example of that is um, Hilary Mantel mm. um, or Maggie O'Farrell. So Hilary Mantel is is Thomas Cromwell in that yeah. book. We are Thomas Cromwell in that book. And, and Maggie O'Farrell, we are, you know, Shakespeare's wife and Shakespeare's children and every everything. And so everything you see. And so in that case, they've just have such incredible detail. But in a, in a novel like mine and in many other historical fiction, what actually really matters is having a little more distance on your characters. So you're not actually just seeing everything through their eyes. You also have all sorts of things that are great at your disposal, including distance and, and the era being over that we can look back and we can laugh about certain things that, that your characters, the characters might not understand or, or, or just their language too. You know, some of it is just having fun with the language where there's a little bit of irony in how you use it. Um, and that, I mean, that was my intention was to, to have just some of the jokes, just, you know, today's reader, uh, my character would be sincere, but the reader understands that the perspective of the book is, is ironic in a way, or yeah. just a little teasing, just a little, yeah. not making fun of the character straight up, but just a little. So, and so in that case, you always have to keep in mind what your reader might know. And so thinking about your implied reader and who you're writing to um, so that you can use that knowledge um, on the page and the reader then or the implied reader kind of becomes a part of that creative process because they, they are giving back to you and speaking back to you and, and what you're putting on the page. Yeah, it's, it can be hard to do, but I think, I think just keeping very uh, fun though it's very very it's fun, fun. And, yeah. yeah and I mean one thing that I do and that I did particularly with this book and it's it's the opposite of what a lot of people would suggest is I actually went and read books set in the same era novels set in the same yeah. era I read the Bostonians I read oh I don't know just a lot of different a lot of different novels um set during that time and I also watched movies and what that helps helped me with, and when it can help people doing historical fiction, is then you understand 
our, our common vocabulary about a particular era. Everybody gets it when you say a chinoiserie umbrella holder or you know Spanish tiled vestibule, like we're, we're getting it, gold framed mirror, um, I don't know, just the things that that uh, Anna Macassar on the sofa, you know, certain things that are that are uh, telegraphing that era. And um, and and so you're you're aware of this, the stereotypes and you're not overusing them, but you are taking advantage of them. Um, so you don't have to sort of. I don't know. Anyway, you're trying. I'm trying to be original, but I'm also totally aware that what you know, the, saying some saying the word bustle at the, uh, you know, somebody's dress, you kind of like. You're you're helping the reader get where you are. Mm -hmm. So does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, and and then that inherited tone because again, historical novels novelists talk about this. If you write the dialogue, actually the way they sounded back then, mm, it will yeah. it will sound too contemporary to our ears because um, I, I and this is this is something that I've heard and 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 read about that it actually. Even if you read, even if you read Aristotle's poetics, it actually sounds uh -huh. very, very, very contemporary. Wow. So if you were to yeah. actually write in some of their language and dialogue, it wouldn't wouldn't feel right. And so the mistake that people make is over antiquating and over overdoing yeah. it. You can't do that yeah. either. So you do need to find a kind of middle ground that's not quite realistic. Uh, but I think you can find that middle ground with help by reading the uh, works from that time period that we have inherited and that are in our common consciousness yeah. uh, to help you get a, a sense of yeah. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And plus it's fun I, just- I think humor helps novels. a lot with this. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I missed that. Well, Sorry, it's fun just to read novels of the era and also to watch movies of the era because you're like, oh, yeah. I have to watch this movie now. <laughs> I know, it's very fun. <laughs> it's very fun. Yeah, no, if you're being really accurate, um, they wouldn't call each other by their first names, you know, things like right. that. There, there's certain formality that would be there and, and that that could be okay. But I I just didn't want, you know, you, you sort of want to do some shorthand and help the reader feel comfortable in this world. Um, but I'm happy to show you an example of how not to do it, if you'd like. Yeah, so this, we're um, really lucky, folks, because Ginny is going to share... And this yeah. is scary, I think, for a lot of writers. <laughs> her actual first pages as she wrote them. Yeah. Um, and it's it was I yes. just want everyone to understand that writing is an embarrassing act. Okay. No matter <laughs> how you cut it. And and it yeah. is, it's always um borderline humiliating because you're putting yourself out there and you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to go ahead and say all the silly things that we have in our brains and get it out there. And, you know, and then you get many, many drafts to go back and pick out the gems and get rid of all the, the rest. And so I'm going to just read a few paragraphs from literally the first time I think I sat down to write this. And as I described, I started to get the ideas for this story. And then I started reading and watching other things set in this time period. And this really was part of my process. And then I finally sat down with an idea of this woman writer approaching her publisher. And so it actually does start in the same location as where it ended, where the book ended up, the published book ended up, ended up. But just take note of how overwritten this is. Way too many adjectives. Okay. And, um, you know, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to say a whole lot more, but it's pretty obvious what the problems are. So we'll, 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 we'll look at that. Okay. On a bright day in the fickle month of April, two adjectives already. We're not even into the next first second clause. 
Victoria Fields, she had a different name back then, stepped from her carriage onto a brick sidewalk, third adjective, in Beacon Hill. Her hardly worn leather boots avoided rivulets of slush and mud that raced down the steep hill, signaling that Boston had survived yet another woman, winter, although as was often the case, a squall hung just off the harbor, clouding the horizon. I kind of still like that idea of the squall approaching, but I ended up thinking, don't get distracted by the weather. But for right. now, she shut her eyes and lifted her chin into pale sunlight in order to soak it in. The promise of spring encouraged her to commit to greater activity in the coming temperate months. Oh, brother, already way overwritten temperate months. Okay, she would go <laughs> forth, very old fashioned language, from her desk and try her hand at new things, things she had never tried before skills, opportunities, the rubbing of elbows with strangers, whatnot. So I'm trying it some kind of humor, like it's not there yet, but I'm trying for something. Okay, she breathed through flared nostrils, that's bizarre, as an eager expression spread over her fine alabaster face, totally cliche, her long neck straining toward the future. Who knew what wonders she might accomplish next? Okay, there's some idea of a woman longing for something. It's very overwritten. We're not really sure what yet. There's nothing concrete there. There's just a lot of, of words that are sort of distracting <laughs> and describe her in kind of generic ways. But okay, but first she must attend to the business at hand. Her publisher had summoned her from across the river in Cambridge because the copy edits were ready on her next novel. She had brought her along her most sentimental fountain pen, a gift from her father on the publication of her first book when she was only a girl of 17. She intended to use it with alacrity today to sign off on a few changes that would no doubt be required. Um, let's see, I'm just, do, 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 do. oh, well, okay. Her editor, the famous Frederick Gausted, knew at least as many, uh, known at least as well as many of his authors, had warned in his note that he'd been forced by the publisher to take on a new copy editor a zealous younger gentleman trained at Harvard. Gaustad apologized in advance for taking up her time as there seemed to be more corrections than usual. Okay, so I'm starting to get into what is gonna turn out to be the plot. Um, right. The part of this, this story centers around the fact that she is given a new editor, young editor, handsome young editor. And so the expectation starts to build that there's gonna be a romance. And the whole book is, you know, she's a romance novelist and she gets to sort of, Play, I get to play with this and have this fantasy of is this going to be a romance or isn't it? And, and the story ends up in a very different place than, than we expect it to go, I hope. Um, so, but the point of all that, and I could definitely read more because it definitely goes on in that same way, is overwriting had to happen. I had, I was trying to find my way in this other era. Things like go forth, you know, who yeah. I was writing a novel set today. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't use that, but I was aiming for something that I thought sort of sounded grand from an earlier time and exactly. trying to capture humor yeah. in some way, but not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of, again, trying to push the antiquity of it, but in a way that that feels false. Yeah. Um, My husband who read early drafts liked to call it teacuppy. Uh, and it's like, you know, your teacuppy. And, and so Oh my God, so many pages got chucked because I had to get through all that mess of yeah. sounding too teacuppy. It's the only way to, what is it? Um, old fashioned, um, cliche, old fashioned. In a brittle. It sounds silly. Yeah, with the little pinky yeah. holding out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. 
being a little too careful too. I mean, what's interesting yeah. here is you also are giving us a lot of backstory as if, as if to prepare us for the scene or to, to prepare us for what is going yeah. to happen. And we don't need that. We just can go into the scene. Yeah, because um, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, who knows? So that often happens that you don't really know what your story is. So those first pages, you you just almost always have to chuck because they're just getting you to whatever. Sometimes it's yeah. the second chapter needs to be the first chapter. Sometimes it's halfway through the first chapter, you're finally at the start of your book or something. You know. Yeah, and I've had one of my students the other day. She said, "I've been listening to this series, and I'm I'm surprised at how many authors say that." Because I, I oftentimes ask them, were these always your first pages? And, and they will say yes. And but the thing is, or or I ask them, is this always where you began? Yeah. And they say yes. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that the pages were exactly the way they were or were paced the way they were. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it just means that, you know, you started on that afternoon in April um, right. as you as right. you do. Right. I mean, I noticed there's literally one phrase. I think from that whole thing that I kept for some reason, I liked rivulets of slush and mud. <laughs> right. um, so who knows? I, maybe I just like the word rivulets, uh, which is sort of a fancier word for whatever that is. But um, anyway, I, I mean, I think I, I, I don't mind sharing this because I think I think it's just really important to know that that writing is in the rewriting yeah. and that everybody makes shitty first drafts and it's just how we do it. And if you if you look at that again, so like your first sentence now is on an overcast afternoon in April, Victoria Swan stepped from a carriage onto a brick sidewalk in Beacon Hill. And and a lot of people are like, well, what's wrong with adjectives? And you can say, well, nothing's really that wrong with adjectives, but they can take away attention and power from the noun that they are trying to that the adjectives are trying to modify and that can also create a rhythm problem so in this sentence if you had added an adjective to every single noun it'll start to get really static um so if you had on an overcast afternoon in april victoria swan stepped from I don't know, a black carriage onto a brick sidewalk in the Beacon in Beacon Hill. I mean, just right. the, the doubling up of one adjective per noun can begin to become kind of rhythmically. Yeah, yeah. It's clunky and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think, and I think also in the paragraph, uh, the first paragraph of the of the early the, the first draft that I read to you, um, there's this whole funny idea that I'm trying to wrestle with, which is that she's she wants to do something. She wants, there's something that she's ready to go and do differently, but I don't yet know what that is. You know, right. I mean, I know some writers figure out before they even start writing the first page all about their character's motivations and what's going to happen and all that. But I find that I have to discover it as I go. And so where that ended up being um, I can't remember what draft was pretty obvious, which is that the, the thing this woman wants is to write a different type of novel. So how, and how do you make that into an active dynamic enough thing to warrant a whole novel? And you can, I can just immediately, you know, my agent like, can't she want something else? You know, <laughs> 
isn't there something else that that um but no that is what she wants and and then it leads to all of these actions and problems and all the rest and and immediately in this very opening scene in the in the finished book she starts to encounter pushback and and difficulties and and pain from that so you know anyway you can set up your challenge but i i didn't know what the challenge was yet exactly yeah. in the first Wait, and are you saying that your agent or editor kind of pushed back on the idea and wanted her to be? I'm trying to remember, to be perfectly honest. Um, I I don't know whether that was just me internalizing that, you know, like mm -hmm. anticipating like, oh, you know, can't, you know, because so many novels have very clear uh, quests. Yeah. And, you know she has to save somebody she has to you know i don't know what do some you know do something well, but but this is the story of a writer and yeah. i've never i've never actually done that before i've never actually written the story of a writer and i thought you know what this woman is so entirely different from me and yet this woman is entirely like me and she's actually like me as i write this novel there's a mm -hmm. meta aspect to this because i'm trying to write an adventure story that's actually about somebody trying to write literary fiction. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. It's it's a it kind of folds in on itself. Um, and at a certain point, and it ends up being about that. It ends up being about the love of books and the love of writing and the love of um, writers and readers. Yeah. So, which um, is not the most active thing, but it speaks to me. So speaks to you and you have to write about what you're most passionate about and most interested in because otherwise it's not going to carry over to the reader. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to go back to I, I can't remember, it might have been in the second sentence of your original, but you oh, had okay. a um, a phrase that used that. Do you see that sentence that I'm referring to? Um, Slush and mud that raced down the steep hill? No, that's not it. Signaling that Boston had survived yet another winter, winter, although as was often the case, the squall hung just off the harbor, clouding the horizon. Okay, that's not it. It is the first sentence. Things that she had never tried before? I'm trying to find the word that. Um, apparently I use it pretty often. That's not so good. Well, it was um, that in its own, um, it added a whole phrase to a sentence that you were already going. I already finished essentially. Yeah. Uh, hmm. If you can't find it anyway. So it was, lots of times we will do this. We'll say an overcast yeah. afternoon in April, Victoria Swan stepped out from the carriage onto a bricks um, sidewalk in Beacon Hill that she had never seen before or something right. like that. Adding, that adding, explains it too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explains it and also flattens um, what you already have. And so being careful of those that phrases and which phrases, because mm -hmm. oftentimes we use them to add description um, onto what we already have. And it also is a way to just kill the end of the sentence because the end of the sentence then kind of falls flat. Yes, um, yes. And so, so you had cut that out um, as, yeah. as you move forward. Many times over, I'm sure. You know, and, and it's good to notice if, if you do still want to keep that, that phrase in, um, turn it into its own separate sentence. Turn it into its own sentence. And, and, and then see, is, do you really need it? Is that, yeah. really, is that really where you need that to go, that to go? Um, you know, so that's, that is the way to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. 
And it, this, <laughs> we're not talking about just the misuse of that itself, but when it when you're adding on its own dependent clause, right? Um, that is not necessary in the sentence, and then the sentence begins to get weighted down by all these dependent clauses and by all this right. description. Um, you yeah. know, it's even worse than adding on just an adjective because you're you're actually extending the adjective to its whole clause, and yeah. then we begin yeah. to lose the whole point of the sentence anyway. Right, right. And I, I think that in those first drafts, though, the reason why we end up doing that, and I'm, you can see I'm guilty of it, is because it's, it's like we're digging and we just keep digging. Yes. Maybe it's maybe this is about maybe it's about this. Well, maybe it's about this or maybe it's about this. You know, you just keep adding. It's it's cumulative. And that's why for me, often uh, revision, it means just cutting just vastly. You know, I, I um, between a first and a second draft, I can just decimate uh, whatever I've written and end up with, um, you know, something much, much tighter and then work on it from there and then add back, add in new things and new characters and all of that. Right. I, it, it's, it's such an impractical process, I just have to say, and maybe mine in particular, but it's just, yeah, it just spends, I just spend an awful lot of time doing this and it's not a live I don't know any other way to do it. Yeah, it's not yeah. a live performance. I, I tell you, you know, you don't, <laughs> no one has seen you do it so you, it, the fact that yeah. you exit out and and it's, it's not a problem something yeah. else I wanted to add to, them. <laughs> there's some sentences I think it was at the end of the first paragraph and again this is off of your your first draft and okay. she's talking about imagining her future mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can you read those sentences again oh I kind of hate to do I have to okay I know well, I, I just want to I want to okay point- no no this is mortifying to be honest this I is just terrible <laughs> I mean, it's just really terrible Okay, um, I hope people will actually read my finished books because, oh boy. Yes, the finished book is Okay, all right, this is mortifying. She breathed through flared nostrils. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Um, As her eager expression, wow, bad again, spread over her fine alabaster face. Horrible, horrible, absolutely horrible. Her long neck straining toward the future. Yeah, that's a point of view. Okay, who knew what wonders she might accomplish next? Okay, so- a horrible description, really no thought to it. Also, I write really fast when I'm writing a first draft. And so this kind of drivel comes out. It just is like, blah, 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 blah. and it's not good. And um, and I'm mortified I've now shared it with the world. Good job. So, <laughs> and I, you do it twice. but what I wanted to point out, so she's lifting her face uh, yes. towards her future and what she will imagine next. Accomplish and next. What I think is happening there is that you, the writer, are trying to push drama and trying to push an expectation of change yeah. um, that uh, trying to push this promise to the reader. Hey, something's yeah. going to happen. I promise yeah. you something's going to happen. And we do this a lot. We all, we all do this. We do these little hints um, or these little glimpses into, you know, to, for a reader, like, hey, I'm yeah. something's actually going to happen. This is important here. You should be right. watching. And yet it feels false because why not just get to the moment, the scene where it actually happens? Right. Um, well, the reason why you don't is because you don't know what it is yet. It is yet. So I'm like, I'm yet. straining as a writer towards something and I don't know what it is. But just yeah. to give myself a little credit, um, instead in the final book, I mean, the final, yeah, the final book, um, yeah. there is a lot of that same suggestion of uh, changes coming. And and you can sense it that, um, who are these people who are down at the end of the hall 
you know, going around the corner? Why is she being escorted in, treated differently there? You know, why is, um, I don't know, just anyway, a number of indications in literally the first two pages that changes is happening. It's imminent. She doesn't know what's going on yet, but it's so clear that um, and by the way, the name Miss Pennypacker and the dance hall singer, I am starting to have fun. I am having fun. Yeah. I am picking Dickensian names. And I, I don't know quite, I mean, eventually I know what's what's happening because this is the umpteenth draft. But but the point is, there's a lot of suggestion that this character who we we like or we don't like because she seems a little snobbish is is in for something because the yes. rug's being pulled out from underneath her. She's being treated like an aspiring writer and she's their most successful author. So what's going on? But what you're so. not writing is, little yeah. did she know that the rug was about to be pulled out from beneath her. Um, right. Not writing that. Um, and you cut out those early sentences in which you were trying to make something happen. But again, you didn't know. Um, right. This this happens in our first drafts all the time. You didn't know what was going to be happening, but you you felt that pressure of making yeah. something happen. So you're like, okay, she's thinking about her future. And so what you changed it to is instead of abstract ideas that something might happen, you put right. it into the concrete. Um, yeah, so absolutely. it doesn't feel false. And then it starts to fall apart or her, her, her situation comes to light and starts to fall apart immediately as they start talking. And that, yeah. I, I didn't get to that yet, but just instantly he's like, we have a new publisher. He's assigned you a new editor. I'm not going to be doing your books anymore. You're going to have to write more of them. It's like one thing after the next. And she's like, wait, what? <laughs> what's, you know, what's going on? And, and then the scene follows very quickly with her new editor. So, you know, it's stuff, shit, shit starts to happen, which is good. That's what but you again, it, it is happening when she's preparing for that fanfare and then it doesn't happen. And right. She, First and paragraph. Yeah. There Second alone. paragraph. I think there's even a line that says, um, like a new author, she's been abandoned to the, I don't know. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aspiring, aspiring author. author. Right. And there's also the mention that that the young men who are editors, um, at least a husband of this sort, won't go missing for days. Yes. So that is something that honestly, as a more experienced novelist, I've learned how to do, which is, okay, reader, get it. Get something's happened. We now understand there's, she's got a bad husband. This This woman who we don't yet know, but we think we might like something's bad going on with her husband, right? Yeah. So he goes missing for days. It must be that he goes missing for days. So we'll we'll find out what that means. So And again, so it, it launches mystery and questions in a good way that is not confusing because yeah. it seems like um, it's not abstract. Um, it's concrete. It's It sounds like her voice is entering in there. We almost get uh, almost, uh, almost her uh interior dialogue there because you can feel that that's almost her language and her tone yeah yeah that's, her tone. yeah that's her thoughts definitely and yeah. um yeah it's funny mm -hmm. i know that line too uh so so it's working in many many ways and yet you're able to get in some information there that just launches questions without confusions and without it being yeah you yeah know, into the pretty clouds and yeah. Right. Um, and I wanted to introduce humor too, which is why things like, you know, the open neck shirt of the image of the guy in her book is what caused the stampede at the bookseller. You know, it's like, I don't know, you just want to, I mean, it's, it's, it's just an added detail, but the point is, uh, or Mr. Barnum's white snow leopard, you know, things that add a little quirkiness and humor or something. 
So yes, anyhow. It's, yeah, it's so well done. And I think we're just waiting. I, I really got into it very quickly, um, okay. right in those first yeah. pages that I was just I waiting for what's <laughs> going to happen to Victoria and knowing that knowing that something is not going to go to her expectation, but still being on her side too, yeah. um, because yeah. she is, uh, she's unusual in this situation. She's a female writer in this situation. She's probably had to work hard to really get to her place. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. worked hard. Speaking of which, this first draft, I think was written in 2017 and this oh. book is being published in 2023. So yeah. I, and, and um, I've finished, I've got another novel. I'm, just about done with uh, its umpteenth draft and um, I hope it'll find a home eventually. But the point is this process takes a long time yeah. and you know, to get to, to go from those kind of really bad first drafts, which I don't know how to do it any other way. Um, yeah. If someone could, if you could teach me how to do it. Faster. Yeah. I, that's, I'd be rich if I could teach people not, <laughs> not to do bad first drafts. Skip the first okay, like, seven that. drafts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, everyone, no, we're going to have to let Ginny go and, and get everyone back to their writing desk. So everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. This particular interview is close to the end of all of our passages of summer interviews, a, a title of which I still don't like, <laughs> but I just went with it anyway. So feel free to mock it. Um, and so, but you can look back, we had about 50 author interviews and a lot of them have lots of different ideas and specific ways that you can think about your first pages. Now, I actually already asked Ginny before we started the live interview, um, what advice she would give to authors about her own first page, about their own first pages. And she said, well, I tell them to write shitty drafts. So then I I've, thought- I've illustrated that. I think I've illustrated it. You <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. I wouldn't even share. I would not. I would not. <laughs> oh, I'm a fool. I'm so, a fool. and then for days afterwards, I wouldn't be able to sleep. Um, hopefully you won't have that. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for jinxing me. <laughs> <laughs> you okay. Or I'll bring I'm over right. melatonin. You don't live that far away from me. Um, yeah. how do you, I think the tr the problem is the psychological trick of being able to force yourself forward while you have all this junk on the page. How do you do it? Is it hard for you? Is it easy for you? Are you able just to drive forward? Is it a matter of just having had several other books under your belt? How do you do it? How do you get comfortable with leaving that stuff on the page? Because it's it's difficult. Yeah, it's bad. It's true. Um, I, I personally, and this is different for different people, I personally end up finding my character and her or his motivation and heart and mind through their actions. And so for me, a first draft is figuring out what are the challenges my character is going to face and how is that going to reveal the character to me? I'm not even worried about the reader yet. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out what. And so for me, storyline which is kind of the same thing as plot, I guess, but it's really, you know, what happens and how does that reveal character? I need to get through a first draft to, to know who I have, who, who these characters are. And then I'm able to put that aside and start a second draft that is where I care more about the language and where I care more about the character development and where I delve in more deeply to setting and all the other things. But for me, finding the shape of my story um, is with what I need to do in a first draft. 
Yeah. And, and so, so it's really just, it's like a scaffolding and the, the words, the sentences are terrible as we just saw, but I'm doing that. I'm doing the finding of what's, you know, of, of, of who, uh, where to place my characters and what setting and what problems and all the rest. So I don't mind. I don't, I love going to a second draft because I'm going to ditch all the crap and get down to now I know what my story is. Have you found what a crazy oh, thing we do. All right. So Ginny, thank you. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. It's really helpful to a lot of people. Appreciate it. Good, good, good. Take care. Thanks so much. But you never wonder why there isn't nothing here at all.